All right, it's October 13th, and we're here with a terrific audience of preppy Tweedy Jews at Yale University. This is Unorthodox. All right. I'm really good recording of an audience we have. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Hi. And Senior Writer Liel Leibowitz. Shalom. <laughs> Shalom. You're bringing out the heavy Hebrew. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm Jewing it up from the beginning. You were Jewing it up from the beginning. We are in the Joseph Slifka Center for Jewish Life at Yale, just to show you how Jewishly we've landed in New Haven. Later in the show, we'll be joined by our guest Jew. Yale philosophy professor Shelley Kagan, and as ever by our Gentile of the Week, WNPR radio host Colin McEnroe. This is our first off-site live audience taping ever. And we want to be clear, for the right price, which is lower than you would think, we will tape unorthodox anywhere. <laughs> we will go to Iran. We're in negotiations with Syria. There is no place we won't go to tape unorthodox. So if you're listening and you'd like to bring us to your campus uh, or your JCC or, bar, do we do bar mitzvahs? Yes, definitely. Yes, we do bar mitzvahs. Okay. Yeah. Just, you know, let us know. We, we are cheaper than most motivational dance, than the dance motivators. So, yes. so we will become the only, so we will become the only Americans to officially intervene in Syria, in other words. <laughs> that's, that's, that's lovely. Oh, that's we're going there. <laughs> you went there so early. Of course. You went there early. All right. Like um, seven Talmuds like surrounding <laughs> me. I'm completely moved. We are sitting in front of an ark, actually. Like we are. God is God is everywhere in this room. First, as ever, a little news of the Jews. It was a tough week for the Jews, but aren't, but aren't they all? <laughs> in Israel, a series of stabbings of Jews by Palestinians, young, old, in the West Bank, but also in Jerusalem, has the whole country on edge. One moment of good cheer, on Monday night on the 185 bus in Jerusalem, is the 185 bus a, an important bus, Liel? I, how would I know? Oh, that's right. You don't, don't take, take public buses, trans- you know, here, so why would I take them there? <laughs> you take Uber there, too. Uh, on the 185 bus, a Palestinian assailant was disarmed by the very macho Yair Ben Shabbat, who used nunchucks to smack down a would-be assailant. Can we talk about how amazing that name is? Mm-hmm. Yair Ben Shabbat, yeah. yeah. What was the guy in, um, in Exodus, the Paul Newman character? It's Ari Ben Kanan? Ari Ben Kanan. Like, Yair Ben Shabbat is almost as macho as Ari By the way, ben on the internet, his official nickname now is Ninju. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. It all proves that whatever Ben Carson says, if you're a macho Israeli, guns are not necessary. More on that later. With all the turmoil in the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives, it's looking increasingly possible that Utah Congressman Jason Chaffetz, whom I want to call Chaffetz, whose father was Jewish but who himself converted to Mormonism while a place kicker at BYU, could end up as the next speaker of the house. Um, this is why rabbis say don't let your sons grow up to be place kickers, which is, by the way, such a, it's the easiest job on the football team, right? What is a place kicker? Sorry. You, <laughs> Ms. Varsity Athlete from Duke, no. you, don't, you don't know? No. He's the guy who kicks. Yeah. It sounds like, like a placeholder. It's, it's in the name. It's in the place <laughs> kicker. But it sounds like you like stand there while the kicker gets ready, and like then you go, and then he kicks, and you sit down. And then you move, and he kicks. Yeah. Then you move. Yeah, no, no, no. He was a soccer player. He went to BYU, and they said, why don't you try place kicking? He place kicked, and then, surrounded by the good blonde Mormon love at BYU, he realized that the Book of Mormon was true. And so he is the most American person ever. You know, he starts off as Jewish, then then becomes Mormon. He starts off because his, uh, I think his stepmother then married uh, the his the father's caucus, his father's the caucus family. No, his father off, married 
Kitty Dukakis. His, right. His father married K- right? Kitty Dukakis. That's true. So he grows up with the Dukakis uh, family, and he's a Democratic uh, fundraiser before he meets Reagan on campus and becomes a Republican. This is a person really <laughs> good at conversions. I'm really, I'm really into that guy. I know nothing about his ideas or politics, but I love the fact that he fluctuates so beautifully. Yeah. Suffice it to say, we really want him as a guest on Unorthodox. Yeah, like that would just be very welcome here. That we could deliver twelve congressional votes. We could get Jerry Nadler. We could get Stephen Stolarts. I mean, he, if we have he, a lot of sway. They aren't Republican <laughs> votes, but you know what I'm saying. We have a lot of sway. In Brooklyn, four public libraries will open on Sundays to accommodate the Orthodox communities. Comedian Jerry Seinfeld announced plans for two shows in Tel Aviv in December, which would upset Roger Waters of Pink Floyd, who last week attacked John Bon Jovi for going to Israel, thus prompting Howard Stern to attack Roger Waters, saying, what's Roger Waters' thing with the Jews? How great would these Seinfeld shows (laughs) be? You know? This, this observational humor at this particular moment in time. It's like, do you ever notice that you walk down the street and someone stabs you? What's up with that? And everyone's like, it is very bad. Why do you ask this question? It, it is, is offensive. Yeah. And a ninja comes out of nowhere. Yeah. He's like, you know, petting down. It's opening for him. But I just think it's such a classic rock clusterfug that Howard Stern is slapping down Roger Waters for slapping down John Bon Jovi for playing in Israel. Anyway. Let's talk about neurosurgeon and Republican presidential nominee and Yale trustee, Ben Carson, one of our finer trustees, who said last week that if the Jews of Europe had been armed, the Holocaust would not have happened. Now, I want to say that I do actually think there's a little something to this. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm a little squishy for a liberal on Second Amendment stuff because I think there's a left-wing argument for letting some people have guns who aren't the police or soldiers. And I think it's really interesting that um, people who fundamentally mistrust uh, police officers and soldiers then think that they're the only ones who should get to have guns. So I'm, I feel like there's this grain of a shred of a piece of a nugget of wisdom in what Ben Carson said. That's very diplomatic of you. <laughs> but Ben Carson went further. And so I do want to turn to Liel first because you're the only one among us who's ever been armed and ask what you make of Ben Carson's comments. And, and who's a card-carrying member of the National Rifle Association. So this is a good question for me to answer. And, and the first requisite uh, way to answer it is to say that like any comments that uh, make absurd generalized uh, statements about the Holocaust, uh, it's silly and probably shouldn't really be discussed further not to give such idiotic views their claim. However, uh, yesterday we celebrate the, uh, celebrated the 75th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto, uh, which is prominent in our memory of the Holocaust, uh, primarily because it is one of the very few places in which Jews did take guns. Uh, and we remember the names of these people, like you know Mordechai Nilevich and Svia Lubatkin, uh, because they, they got guns and, and they did something about it. Now, should we think that if more of them had more access to firearms, uh, the Third Reich would never have risen? I think that is a, a patently stupid uh, opinion. But I would have loved it if, you know, Annie Frank got her gun uh, and, and many others did. Uh, <laughs> and And 10,000... You know, ten thousand too soon for Anne Frank. Always, <laughs> always too soon for Anne Frank. Ten thousand dead Nazis uh, and and several hundred more role models for fighting Jews is never a bad thing. But I think it's absurd to say that like a few Jews with guns would have stopped this. Like against the German army, it doesn't make any sense. And if you actually think about it, if you actually know anything about the Holocaust, it's just a crazy thought. And like, yes, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was an amazing thing, but like th- un- under twenty 
Germans were killed. Like it actually didn't do, I mean, it was an amazing thing and it's great for us to have this as this example because obviously there were Jews who fought back. But just to sort of like extrapolate from there, it doesn't make any sense. And that's why it's just like, it's so crazy to hear. But it's also part of this thing where it's like, everyone just stop talking about the Holocaust in your campaign. Like, just stop. <laughs> <laughs> if you have to, if you have to invoke the Holocaust, you're, like there's a better way to say whatever it is you're trying to say than like the Holocaust wouldn't have happened if you guys had guns. To Get a little of, more nuance. The sort of Mad Libs. Yeah, it's like wait, I haven't mentioned the Holocaust in three stump speeches. Let me. Stephanie, to, to your argument, yes, uh, I think if if you are taking arms uh, up against the uh, you know Wehrmacht uh, at in around you know 1943, uh, you're probably a, a, a tad too late to that party. Uh, but I'm asking, what about 1936? You know, what about someone comes in? And, and let's be let's be more realistic. Let's talk about today. Let, let's know. Let's uh, consider the fact that these two uh, brothers who go into the kosher supermarket in France. What happens if they know that the person checking out the schmaltz jars in the gefilte fish in aisle 12, you know, all have semi-automatics? Uh, I think that is a little bit of a deterrent. Right, we get this argument from the NRA or from NRA types that essentially what you need what you need is the old Wild West, right? If everyone has a gun, nobody kills anyone, right? The problem is not everyone's going to have a gun. So it's gonna be and a lot of bad guys people. and a few and a few shop you know, a few Israeli emigres in Brooklyn who have guns. And who know how to use them. Like we're talking just about if we're just arming random people, like these people in Warsaw, they were just gonna like be able to take down an army. Like I think you're you're talking about just there's a difference between handing everyone a gun and, Well if like, you have a gun you better know how to use it. Right. So what you want is a more weaponized society, Leo. That is absolutely true. That is a clear reflection of my views. Is it? What I would like is a, is a, is a, is a society where everyone feels empowered to defend themselves. And, and in my opinion, having grown up in a somewhat lawless situation <laughs> uh, in which everyone is armed, but miraculously you have no school shootings and, and very few you know, accidents and, and other tragic uh, occurrences of that sort. Uh, people, because they have guns, guns are far less of a big issue. It's something that you have. It's a tool that you own, and you use it responsibly, sporadically, and only when absolutely necessary. I just think that line of reasoning is sort of like it's the libertarian paradise line of reasoning. You know, like when we get there, it'll be utopia. The path there might be kind of hard. <laughs> kind of bloody. <laughs> it'll be kind of bloody. You know, it's in the meantime, if you want to see a libertarian paradise, hey, you know, live the dream in Somalia. I mean, until you get there, until the structures emerge, it's, you know, <laughs> hey, you don't want to pay excise taxes? Go live the dream. There's a few African failed states where you can live the dream. But we'll get there, right? The utopia will emerge. And for you, it's one where everyone has a Smith & Wesson. Or, you know, a Heckler and Koch or a Glock. Or a Glock. <laughs> so um, before we go any further, two announcements. First of all, we've been getting so much amazing mail that we are dedicating a whole show in two weeks to talking with our listeners and answering their questions. If you have something you must tell us and you haven't gotten it to us yet, send us a letter at unorthodox at tabletmag. It's actually called an email. <sighs> Snap. She's, I just want to make sure the college students understand what you're talking you've about. You still got it. You're still under 30, Butnick. You've still got it. Wouldn't it be a text? Oh, you just dated yourself with email. They no don't send text e- anymore. It's they- all Snapchat. <laughs> now you're just confusing him. Snapchat us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Second, you may not know, although we hope you do, that we have another podcast at Tablet, Vox Tablet. It's hosted by Sarah Ivry. Unlike Unorthodox, Vox Tablet has won a National Magazine Award. And this week on Vox Tablet, Sarah's guest is Marina Rusto, who won a MacArthur Genius Grant for her work on the Cairo Geniza. You can get it at tabletmag.com. Okay. So here we are at Yale, alma mater of Ben Carson, Ben Stein, and Benjamin Spock. 
all true. And we know you guys are smart, uh, but you know what? Those Bens are not the panel of world-renowned Jewish experts that you have sitting here before you. We are. So we thought we'd have a round of questions from the audience for us. So step up to your mic, tell us who you are, where you're from, and ask us a question or tell us what you would like to know our opinions of. Okay, I'm Eve, uh, and I'm a student at Yale, but I'm actually from Tokyo, Japan. So there are unorthodox listeners and Jews in Tokyo, fun fact. And Liel, I can read your shirt for you if you want. I um, would love that, because <laughs> I have a feeling that it doesn't say what I think it says. Let's, let's do it after the okay. show, shall we? Um, and I'm just wondering if you guys have any uh, comments on the Democratic debate tonight. Anything you want to hear and think you might hear? Anything you think you won't hear but would like to hear? Anything you hope you don't hear? Great question. That is a good question. That's a good question. Yeah. My, my question is, there's a democratic debate tonight? <laughs> I mean, really, I think that's representative of the whole thing. Why, why bother with I this? have to say, this is... Charade. Yeah, th this is... Um, I never watch debates, is the truth, because I feel like the answers are... So, it's been so long since a debate has looked to me unscripted or surprising in any way, and I haven't watched one since I was in college, probably. I'm excited... Um, I think, well, I'm excited to see Hillary, see what she does. She's an amazing debater. She just, this is what she's really, you know, she's great at this. And I actually, to be honest, I don't know how, who else, like, I, I know there are other people who are going to be there, but like, I feel like the Republican one, there was just like so many people that the stage, like it was so hard to follow, but, um, yeah, I'm excited. I think it's time we sort of like got things moving. I, I know it seems like everything's happening pretty quickly, but I don't know. I want, I'm, I'm ready to hear some, hear some stuff. And, and, the and best, stop talking about, like, Donald Trump. And the, be, the best format to do that is to get some people you don't care about on the stage for two hours. I don't know if I don't care about them because I don't know who they TV. are. On TV, right. I mean... If you tell me who they are, I'll let you know if I care about them. Uh, sir, in the back. Uh, hi, my name is Yuval. I'm originally from Israel. grew up in Pittsburgh. Um, and my question is, I think, Liel, you wrote about the, the New York Times piece on the Temple Mount. I sure did. Yeah. Um, and Mark, you still write for the New York Times? I still, I haven't, so, despite Liel's plea, I haven't quit yet. I, yeah. So if you could uh, duke it out for us yeah. about the, uh, the recent <laughs> New York Times coverage of, of Israel. I mean, there was a piece today about the stabbings, and they had all these pictures of dead Palestinians. Yeah, Mark, why do you yeah. work for a paper that denies our people's right to exist? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... It, it, because, you know, where else am I going to earn in the three figures per column? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, Liel, you actually columnized about that piece. And got a correction? And, do you think you got the correction? Oh, fuck yeah. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> absolutely yes, I did. Um, can, you, I, can we go back and explain what happened? Yeah. So, Liel, do you want to explain? You columnized about it, Liel. You were the country's leading expert on Yuval's question of that article <laughs> in The Times. Um, the Times is really a delightful newspaper that I, I enjoy. Sometimes, you know, I really feel like, you know, this is a solipsistic pleasure of feeling that the universe puts something there just to amuse you. Uh, I feel that way about the New York Times. And on Friday, they did a thing that really uh, I had to rub my eyes because it seemed too good to be true. It was an article, the headline of which was Controversy Over Judaism's Holiest Place. And then you read, you know, seven or eight or nine paragraphs of relatively kind of like uncontentious, unobjectionable debates by scholars. And they're all debating. It is really clear to you uh, whether, you know, the Temple Mount stood like right here, uh, the, the ancient Jewish temple stood right here on the Temple Mount or like 35 feet to the right, which is a really worthwhile, interesting question for archaeologists and other experts to debate. 
Uh, and then comes the last paragraph that interviews someone who uh, is presented as both an archaeologist and a lawyer that says, well, you know, the standard of proof, it's just not there. So the whole, the whole piece is literally framed by headline and last paragraph as uh, there are experts, and these experts doubt the fact that this temple existed on, wait for it, Temple Mount. And the piece includes such real great uh, uh, pans of journalism, like mentioning three par- or four paragraphs from the end, the fact that there's actually kind of like a wall that's universally recognized by historians uh, to be the outer. It is, it is <laughs> indeed westerly facing. Is it the one um, we pray toward? To be, yes, to Thrice be the daily. outer wall of said temple, to which daughters. our people have only prayed, you know, uh, for millennia. Uh, and so uh, I, I wrote, uh, you know, in a fit of sheer rage, uh, to borrow an expression, uh, a, a column. It says, well, yeah, you know, you could, you could just as easily say that, you know, you can't really be certain that the White House is in Washington, D.C. because, you know, the fire of 1814 might have destroyed it. It might not have ever existed. And let's dig underneath. It. It's, it's such a – it's basically like saying, well, you know, the earth might be flat. The standard of proof is just not there. Uh, and then they issued a correction. Which basically said, "Oh, sorry, no, we we meant where on Temple Mount, not if on Temple Mount." Uh, but the headline actually still doesn't support it because the headline actually still says that there is some sort of controversy. Now, the really beautiful thing is is that this yesterday morning, uh, one of the archaeologists actually cited in the piece wrote, wrote, wrote to the Times and said, "Guys, what are you talking about? No, absolutely not. There is no controversy." By anyone, and part of the reason that there is no controversy, and, and then I promise to shut up about it, is the fact that if you know anything about religious history, by which I mean to say Muslim religious history, not Jewish, you know that the very fact that the the you know the Dome of the Rock stands where it stands is because there was a belief that this was once a sacred Jewish temple, hence we will build it on that spot. Uh, no one contests that except for Rick Gladstone in the New York Times. Yeah, it was. I will say this. I mean, I I hadn't. I had zero to do with the piece, as you know. I, I believe you. You believe that. Um, I do believe that, first of all, you know, headlines, most people don't know that writers don't write their own headlines. And headline writing often goes awry, and I think it's the wrong headline. For the no, no, piece. no, no. It's not, Mark, and, it's not yeah. the wrong headline. It's a, it, to well, no, present listen. a controversy over something that is not controversial. Right. As you said yourself, except dogmatic. for the last line of the piece— Right. It was basically a perfectly adequate piece. But why is about, the piece – no, no. I said it was right. a perfectly adequate so, piece. Why is the piece written – there is no controversy. I actually think that it would be great if all media publications put their reporter – made their reporters available and their editors available to ask answer questions exactly like that. Like I think it's always interesting to know when an article like this runs. No, I agree with Hey, that. reporter so-and-so, where did you get the idea from? It Was it handed to you by an editor? Was it planted by some PR person from some nonprofit or, or some flack for some organization that had, that had some interest at stake? I actually think that even newspapers that say they don't have an ideological position one way or the other, you know, in America, we, we like to say our papers are nonpartisan and are objective. Nevertheless, fair and balanced. Right, fair and balanced. Nevertheless, I think it'd be awesome if every given story could be entire uh, if the reporter and the editor were always available to answer questions like mark that's why we have twitter well okay then so tweet it rick gladstone Our Jewish guest today is Shelley Kagan, who teaches moral philosophy here at Yale. He is one of Yale's most popular teachers and also a great wearer of Chuck Taylors. Welcome, Shelley Kagan. Um, 
Thank you for having me. It's 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 really great to have you. Um, the first question I have is a really really simple one. You're just going to like dash it off. You describe yourself as a non-welfareist consequentialist, uh, <laughs> and and I just you know just for I mean Jews are pretty smart. We're going to get it. Could you give us like 15 seconds on what that means? All right, I'll try to give you a very short story. So there's a theory called utilitarianism that a lot of people have heard of. It says that right and wrong, this is going to be more than 15 seconds, right and wrong is a matter of doing the action that leads to the best results, and then you measure best results in terms of just the total amount of happiness, getting the best balance of pleasure over pain. John Stuart Mill, probably the most famous person who held this view. But you could accept the first part of that view, right and wrong is a matter of results, without accepting the second part of the view, that results should be measured in terms of how good or bad they are solely in terms of the total amount of happiness. You might think other things matter like equality or whether people are getting what they deserve. If you are, except the first part, you're a consequentialist. If you reject the welfare, well-being is all that matters uh, part, then you are a non-welfarist consequentialist, and that's my view. So what kind of consequentialist are you? What matters? What should we be measuring? Okay, so I'm going to answer that question, okay. but I want to make sure we leave time for me to explain why I think Leo is wrong about gun control. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah. Love yeah. Yeah. As much time as you want. So can we we'll skip the philosophy and, <laughs> right, you and just have me opine about you know uh, sure. current events? So, uh, yeah, I mean, what... Do you want to talk to Liel? You want, so what did Liel get wrong? <laughs> okay, so... So, <laughs> <laughs> so the... So the the, the issue about the Holocaust is it's, e- or, or, you know, if, if, the, if the Jews had had guns during, you know, this, uh, during the Holocaust, it's easy to tell stories where if only so-and-so had had a gun. You know, if the person in the grocery store who gets killed, uh, you know, had had a gun, then maybe he would have defended themso- himself or themselves or other people in the store or what have you. But then you're not thinking about all the other cases where people with guns won't do some bit of good that way. They'll do more damage. This is an empirical question. It's certainly not my area of expertise, but everything I read tells me that if you own a gun, it's extraordinarily unlikely that you'll ever use it in defending yourself or anybody you love. What you use it for is either killing yourself or people that you love or somebody you got into an argument with. So if you're going to start thinking about you know, what would the results be, what would the outcomes be if everybody had guns, you've got to remember, indeed, it's not just gunfight at the OK Corral, but everybody busy shooting everybody. Furthermore, if you try to imagine somebody with guns in a situation where um, uh, some sniper comes in, then, of course, you've got the point. So there was a recent letter to the, in the, edit, to the editor in the, in the Times, I think, about this very point, that if some sniper comes in and then I, with my gun, start shooting, then when the police come in, they don't know whether I'm the bad guy or the good guy. And so now the police are made kind of rendered helpless. So that's another consideration that needs to have, be, be thought about. If you think about the Holocaust case, when is it you're imagining having the, uh, the Jews have their guns and, and killing Nazis? If you imagine it happening in the early 30s or mid-30s, whatever, once the Nazis have come in, all that does is it makes it easier for the Nazis to say, look at how these Jews are breaking the law, taking the law into their own hands. Of course we have to you know, uh, uh, deal with this problem. And as somebody suggested uh, you know, earlier, if you imagine it's 1943, 1944, that's way too late. The guns would have already been taken away. So I think you can't just focus on the few cases where uh, maybe some guns would have done some good. I think, look, take the, the broader picture, it's, it's going to do more harm than good. Mic drop. <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd like to very briefly uh, attempt some sort of response here, uh, and, and then I, I would like to ask some questions uh, about, about your work, which I think we all uh, admire deeply. 
to the empirical case, uh, I would like to say that I believe that my views are influenced greatly by the fact that I come from what is probably the closest empirical case study for that type of situation that I'm imagining, uh, which is a nation in which everyone indeed is armed, uh, or a significant part of the population is armed. Uh, now mayors everywhere are calling for more and more people to, to be armed. Uh, and uh, in which you're seeing that indeed uh, there is no more uh, uh, self-inflicted, uh, you know, gunshot wounds than anywhere else in the world, even though the gun ownership ratio is much higher. And you're also seeing uh, that there are no more, you know, violent gun crimes than there are, you know, in, in other respective countries and respective populations. What you are seeing uh, in cases such as, uh, unfortunately, these past two weeks. Uh, are situations in which citizens are perfectly capable of uh, de-escalating, to use you know cleaned up language, uh, attacks that would have otherwise been you know uh, devastating, uh, which which sort of leads me to the whole point uh, about about the Holocaust. Uh, your argument about the 30s, which is when I'm imagining you know guns would have come in most handy, and in fact uh, in several countries, I believe definitely. Uh, in Slovakia post-Nazis in 38, but there were a couple of other countries in the 30s, not including Poland, uh, that actually disallowed Jews right away from owning guns. Um, yes, you could say that that would have proved as, that would have you know, produced another proof point for the Nazis of why Jews were, were evil, but as states uh, collapse under, under the Nazi boot uh, and as lawlessness reigns, uh, that hardly matters anyway. Uh, and so... I would at least like to think that if not changed the course of events, uh, which I don't believe is the case, um, would at least have produced a certain kind of um, empowering thing. And, and this is a perfect segue in, into, into this, this question that I have of you. Um, death, by which I don't mean the phenomenon, I mean the book that you wrote, uh, is, is, is... Death, med- the motion picture. Death, the motion picture. Has anyone motion, uh, uh, you know, commissioned the, the movie rights for that book? No, <laughs> uh, but there was a play based on really? the class. Uh, so I can actually Who get into that. Who uh, played uh, you? Uh, an actor named Andrew Dinwiddie. So this was, this was an off, 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 off <laughs> Broadway uh, production. Sorry, a, it was actually in your living room, wasn't it? <laughs> it, was, it was in a theater not much bigger than my living room uh, and uh, in um, the Bushwick uh, area. Uh, and uh, this one-man show. And what the uh, actor did was each night he gave a different one of the lectures from my class. Uh, he was, you know, Playing me? Is that flattering or insulting to you? <laughs> <laughs> like, he was making money off of giving your lecture. Yeah, we should do that too. <laughs> so, what was your question? Leo? The question was so the book, the book, it's definitely a question. The, the book has uh, this, this viewpoint, which I, I would love for you to you know, ex- explain this briefly, but it basically takes the physicalist approach and it says, you know, we are. Uh, you know, a thing, uh, and and like alarm uh, clocks or or vacuum cleaners, I think is the example that you give. We break down, and that's the end. And yep. if you have all kinds of ideas about you know souls and and afterlife, then well, don't. And 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 to your credit, you you do give the opposing viewpoint, um, you know, its fair share and explain it uh, wonderfully before you you negate it from your own perspective, which you defend well, but. But, but here's my question. First of all, is, is that an accurate representation of... Oh, that's right. So in this class, I mean, in certain classes, I try to keep my cards close to my chest. You know, there's this perspective, there's that perspective. I'm going to show you the strengths and weaknesses of each without 
tipping my hand as to what I actually believe. In the death class, I say on the very first day, I'm going to try to persuade you that death is the end, that there is no soul, that immortality wouldn't be desirable, that you shouldn't be afraid of death. Uh, and I do try to give the other side a fair run for the money, but I make it clear where I come down. How, how, does, how does that work? Do, do, do kids leave the class? Because, you know, most of us, those who are, who are not, you know, as, as enlightened, uh, you know, believe in these things, uh, perhaps because you mean of soul. religious ideas, uh, but also perhaps because of, you know, sheer dread of the alternative. Do you see a process uh, that the students undergo? Do they, do they convert to Kaganism towards the end? <laughs> I don't call it Kaganism. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I don't take, uh, um, I don't do shows of hands in, in this class. I'm not asking how many of you right. believe in souls, how many, and then at the end of the semester, how many of you changed your mind. Uh, and so from that point of view, I don't know. I certainly do know that people come out of the class not always agreeing with me, which, which, which is fine. I mean, of course, as I explained to the students, since I believe what I believe, and since I believe what I believe is true, I hope they will come out believing those things too, because I would like my students to believe the truth. But it's almost as important, maybe it's even more important to me, that they think for themselves. And so if they come out of this class uh, having decided, look, Shelley, you argued this way for uh, such and such a conclusion, but I wasn't persuaded, here's my objection, uh, that's great. I'm, I'm always happy to have people disagreeing with me. It's much, much more interesting than having people agree with me. I think we have time for one more question. Did you want Stephanie? I have an important question. I checked out your page on ratemyprofessor.com, and first of all, it says you are adorable and fun. Um, but it also says you're the hardest grader on campus. Is that true? Well, of course, I don't know for sure whether that's true. I mean, the adorable and fun, of course, that's, <laughs> that's true. That's empirically yeah. proven. Uh, yeah. I, I took the question, was, was it also true that it was one of the yes. hardest? Yeah. Uh, so I have heard this many, many times. Uh, I, it's not as though the grade point averages that each professor, you know, the, uh, the average grades I've assigned gets published in the YDN. So I can compare it to other professors at Yale. I don't know that. I do have indirect pieces of evidence. So I'll, I'll, I'll share two. So one is on the, on the first day of each of my classes, I always start by talking about my grade policies. Uh, and uh, I quote the Yale Blue Book where it's laid out what the grades are supposed to mean, right? It says that A means excellent, B means good, C means satisfactory. And I explain, well, well I take this seriously, and so if you write a good paper for me, uh, you'll, uh, well, you'll get a B, uh, because I take good to mean good, not I'm a moral philosopher after all. Uh, and I, I, take, I take good to mean good. And so when you think to yourself, why did I get a B? You know, why was the paper this bad? I will tell you, no, no, this wasn't a bad paper. This was a good paper. But I can see their jaws dropping as I'm explaining this to them. So that's some indirect evidence. The more direct evidence is that every couple of years, the, the Yale Daily News has a... Uh, newspaper article about grade inflation, and they'll often come to interview me because I'm known as one of the hard graders. Sometimes they'll say things like, Shelley Kagan, parenthesis, known at Yale as one of the hardest graders. And so if it says it in the newspaper, it must be so. <laughs> Especially if that paper is the New York Times. Well, we're not going to have a chance to get to my question, which was, what's it like to be the last of the Jewish men named Shelley? <laughs> but we'll get to that the next time you come on the show, okay? All right, give it up for Mr. Thank Shelley. Thank you so much. Yes. And now our world-famous feature, Gentile of the Week. 
This week, we went looking for the human with the most Goyish name we could find. And lo and behold, the Goyish name generator on our computer spit out Colin McEnroe. Um, as it happens, there is a Colin McEnroe. He graduated from Yale in 1976. And for 25 years now, has been a columnist for the Hartford Current. He also hosts the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. And he's the author of, among other things, one of the funniest humor pieces you'll ever read, I Am Michiko Kakutani, which ran at McSweeney's.net a number of years ago. Go look it up. Welcome, Colin McEnroe. So I, I just wanted to say um, a couple of things. First, one of them is that um, I don't particularly like the term uh, Gentile of the Week. I prefer token goy or okay. goykin, I think, is like could really sort of catch on. The other thing, I, we, I got an update here on the uh, iPad. Since you started the show, Peter Frampton uh, has condemned... Uh, Howard Stern for condemning <laughs> Roger, <laughs> Roger Waters for condemning Bon Jovi for condemning Christy Brinkley. Who? Yeah. Who? <laughs> right. This is really important to whether or not the kids will yeah. go to Israel for the summer. Also, Peter Frampton says don't go. Also, uh, Howard Stern started his career in Hartford, and he used to have this public affairs show that I would go on with him. That <laughs> and it aired. It was on a hard rock station, and it aired at six o'clock on Sunday mornings. So the only people who ever heard it were people who had been up all night, and and so people would come up to me and go. You know, I, I was drunk and I was trying to flush my Volkswagen down a toilet at steak and egg. And I, I heard you talking to Howard. Um, so that's Wait, my... so he, his public affairs, like, you talk about the Hartford City Council with Howard Stern? Well, I mean, we talk about world affairs or, I don't know, <laughs> Paul McCartney getting arrested for pot in Japan is the only thing I actually remember that we talked about. There's some deep cuts. Yeah. We talked about that every week, too. Every... <laughs> <laughs> the only story he knew. Uh, so you have some questions. You were kind enough to bring some questions for us. What do, what do you yeah. got? Well, actually, so one of them is sort of, um, and I know because I'm in radio that visual aids uh, and show and tell don't work that well in an audio thing. But I, I was at, um, I realized, who am I here? Who am I? As the Goykin, who am I? Uh, and I realized I'm the guy at the bat mitzvah whose yarmulke keeps falling off, right? <laughs> um, so I was at. I was at a bat mitzvah on Saturday, and I was the guy whose yarmulke kept falling off. And it kept going off the back of my head, and... So the woman sitting behind me was, after a while, she'd have to pick it up. And then she was like, again with a yarmulke. Uh, <laughs> and, and so the first question I have is, like, how is there, I, like, absent, like, a clip or something, is there, like, a technique for, like, how you put it on? Or like, or, you, know? you know, it strikes me, hearing you say this and watching you struggle with this, <laughs> with this turquoise, beautiful turquoise keepsake that you have in your pocket, um, is the name printed on the inside yeah, of it? it is. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, Isabel Marina Curry Levine deserves Mazel Tov to you. Mazel Tov Isabel. to Isabel Marina. <laughs> Isabel Marina, you're a woman now. Yeah. But seriously, what terrible design. Like, you would think that at some point in a 2000 year history, someone would be like, you know what? That thing just keeps falling off. We're just going to do like uh, bracelets now. Let's just do bracelets. That's your Jew. Right. Just shake your, your left hand. Like, why are we continuing to do well, this? Well, I actually had a professor. So in the annals of Yale anti-Semitism, and this guy was not an anti-Semite. He just had a he had an old world, he had an old blue view of the Hebrew students. But there are annals of, of Yale anti-Semitism. There are, in fact, kept, <laughs> the, the keeper of the annals is here today. The guy who wrote the book is in the audience. Um, and uh, in the annals of Yale anti-Semitism, I had a professor in my freshman year who, um, when we were reading Ulysses, there was, you know, Ulysses is unintelligible even to Irish people, right? I mean, it's, 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 <laughs> nobody really gets, it's beautiful, but it's unintelligible. The answer, of course, is yes. Yes, 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 yes. yes. So we're in some passage in which among 12,000 other words in this, you know, section of three or four pages or 10 pages, somebody's bald. 
And the professor, and of course Bloom, right, is is the character is Jewish, and and the professor the professor's Harold Bloom. The professor Harold Bloom. No, the professor was not. The professor was an old school Gentile, and the professor said, um, "Now, of course, Bloom, and here's a bald figure, and I have to think that." Um, you know, obviously Joyce is playing with the fact that premature baldness is characteristic of Eastern European Jewry, right? And he looks over at me and, <laughs> and my friend Josh and my friend Aaron, and he's like, we're the, all of us, you know, we're, we're 19. We're not, none of us was balding yet. And he looks like, Mark would still you? has a great head of hair. Thanks, I Stephanie. Thanks. I wasn't fishing right for that, but thank you. And so, and, and he looks at us like, right? Every, every Eastern European Jew goes bald prematurely. And, um, you know, so what's interesting is that, in fact, the yarmulke falls off people who have um, full heads of hair, mm. right? Um, I think it stays better if you have some static mm. and you're bald. <laughs> so I think it actually fits with his theory. Now, it's like a force field. It's like a force field. The other option is there is the fez-like. What do they call that? Do you know? Is there a name for the fez-like type of yarmulke? It's a Bukharan kippah. Thank you, Sydney. So it's a Buk- the Bukharan type has sides. Mm-hmm. And so you can get one. But no, it's, it's badly engineered. All right. All right. So, um, but I have sort of another, I have another bar and bat mitzvah related question. And so, and this will involve one bit of name dropping too. So years ago, I, I was at a bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah for a friend of my son's. And I really had this aperçu where I thought, this is amazing because like these people have decided everybody's going to learn this, right? For thousands of years, all of us are going to learn this, we're going to understand things that are really, really incredibly important, and these traditions and ideas are going to be preserved. And I really was sitting there going, wow, this is great, you know? And then I got the second half of the thought a few weeks ago. Here's the name-dropping part. So I had these two long public conversations with Ben Vereen. And so... Um, Ben Who? Vereen. Ben no, Vereen. So, we so, we so, know Ben Vereen. So Ben Vereen, among other things, was Chicken George in Roots. And he's one of the th- things that he's, one of the bells that he's playing these days, days it has to do with how a lot of young black men don't understand their history, you know, and they don't understand the stuff that's in roots. They don't understand fundamental things about Africa. They don't, all this stuff. And I said, well, you need black mitzvah. Uh, uh, at which point I thought there would just be like on Twitter, hashtag black mitzvah would just go wild. But in fact, that didn't happen. Not yet, um, we're, but we're here for you. But we'll black, push it. So my question is like, how is, is do you think bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah is exportable somehow, you know? Well, three quick answers. I don't know. I think it's 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 smart that everyone at a certain age has to learn a certain thing. But I have to say, I could not tell you what my Torah portion was. I know I spent a lot of time figuring out how to say it. I don't didn't know what it meant. Had a great party. Gave away sweatpants. Said my name <laughs> on the butt. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think you have, it, wait. Do you have any leftover sweatpants with Stephanie on the butt? Stephanie, how is it how is it possible that the question of bar mitzvah came up and you did not reference the Drake bar mitzvah video? We don't have time for that. Three quick answers. It's okay. yours. What's your answer? Should other cultures... Well, my answer, an answer is, is the Drake bar mitzvah video. I think black mitzvah is a thing. I mean, Rick Ross raps about, you know, black bar mitzvah. Uh, Drake has a whole video in which he basically celebrates his bar mitzvah with some of his close friends, including Rick Ross. I, I, think, I think the idea is catching on. And my quick answer would be that years ago, I interviewed an Episcopal priest who said that at her... Uh, Church, it, they were start. They were one of a number of churches that was trying to initiate something called Rite Thirteen, R I T E Thirteen, which was going to be, you know, a bar mitzvah for Episcopalians. It's like where you got your first gin and tonic or something, and it was, <laughs> and 
You know, this was... Oh, that would be great. This was... <laughs> you, you read a portion of John Cheever and you drink a gin and tonic and... And they give you a... Son, discount. you're a goy today. Yeah. <laughs> a discounted golf club membership for the first year. And they... Um, I never heard about it again, but we're going to check in on right 13. So... Um, so there, there's, but we're going to push black right. mitzvah. Okay. So now that your serious question, you had a, you had a humdinger for us. Um, okay. So my serious question is this, um, I, I've been through this, uh, myself, but uh, my question actually has to do with how we talk about Israel and what happens when we, uh, when people express opinions about the Middle East that, um, kick various kinds of tripwires, sometimes tripwires that people aren't even aware are there. So it happened at Yale recently with uh, Bruce Shipman. You wrote a lot about this. He was the Episcopalian chaplain here, wrote a letter to the New York Times. Uh, and when the dust settled, uh, he wasn't the Episcopalian chaplain. He had to take his gin and tonics down the road. Um, <laughs> they revoked his bar mitzvah. Right. And, and you know, I, I think it's happened in various ways to various people. It's happened, it happened to me once in my career. And for me, the issue is that it kind of goes from very quickly from, I see this political question differently from the way that you see it, to, no, you're seeing something really wrong that you just should never say. And then, and then the subtext of that is kind of, instead of you and I see this really, really differently, it's, you might be an anti-Semite. Um, and I'm sort of wondering if, if there's a way to talk about that, about where those tripwires are, or, and I, I'm not sure everybody agrees where they are. You know, is it possible for us to just have heated disagreements uh, without the people who are expressing certain opinions having to even to worry about, like, am I going to be an anti-Semite because I said this? I'm going to abstain from this answer. Okay. Just because I'm worried about all the tripwires. Trip yeah, there I'll, you go. See? I'll, I'll, very I'll, smart. I'll, very I'll, smart. Very smart. I'll, I'll, I'll Liel. Yeah. Liel. Um, I'll, I'll try to channel, uh, you know, the spirit uh, of Professor Shelley Kagan here, and 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 answer this uh, empirically and and not you know polemically, um, and I think this goes for every political conversation you want to have, which is uh, to basically ask yourself, would I say or think the same thing uh, about comparable situations? Uh, if the answer is yes, I don't think we have any problem. If you say to me, look, I am uh, a fundamental foe of the idea of nationalism, which I think is a bad idea that leads people to do crazy things. Therefore, I don't think the Israelis should have a, a nation state. I don't think the Palestinians should have a nation state. I will say to you, that's great. I, I disagree with you, but that is a perfectly defensible uh, you know, reasoning. If you say to me, well, I believe one of those nations uh, have been historically kind of uh, underprivileged, therefore should be protected, the other one doesn't really have a right to exist as its own uh, little you know, domain, uh, then we have a problem. And, and when I see people uh, who are not at all bothered uh, by uh, executions of gays, who are not at all bothered by you know, uh, the, the quashing of civil liberties uh, anywhere else in the world, uh, but who get very heated about Israel, and then when asked, well, why here, say something like, well, you've got to start somewhere. It's like, well, you know, start with Russia. Uh, quite more of a substantial, uh, consequential, if you will, problem. Uh, and so I find that a lot of the people who you have discussions with simply don't uh, subscribe to that reasonable point of view. I have a different, shockingly, I have a different take on this uh, than, than Liel. Um, I think that um, I don't expect everyone to have a fully fleshed out sense of how they would talk about every country in the world before they talk about Israel. Israel receives more American aid than most of those countries, than all those countries, in fact, um, Israel has a lot of very vocal defenders here and a lot of very vocal opponents here. Like, there's reasons that it's on the national radar screen in a way other countries aren't. And I think, you know, that's 
that's the way it is. Um, that said, to my mind, the question, I, I, will, I will come down in a similar place, which is, but, but almost a more mystical one, which is, I often think about the person, and I say, do you seem like someone who is, has goodwill toward the people you're talking about? Let me give you an example. Um, I don't talk a lot about misogyny in rap because I'm, I don't know African-American culture that well. I don't know hip-hop that well. And um, if I were to hop on some hobby horse of attacking hip-hop culture without any sort of credibility in, interest in history in, or, or actual stake in the question, and then someone said, that's kind of racist of you, I'd say, I, I, if I were I'm being honest, I'd probably say, yeah, yeah, you're kind of right. And what's interesting to me is that there are people who say horrible things about Israel. In fact, people will say horrible things about Jews, but I know them. I know the kind of things they say about other people. I know the experience in which they're speaking, and it doesn't strike me as anti-Semitic. And then there are people who just, I mean, Bruce Shipman, to my mind, I went and interviewed the man. I, I read that interview. And he freaking hadn't earned the street cred. Like, he didn't have the T-shirt. He didn't have the sweatshirt. Like, mm-hmm. he hadn't given it the office. He had some notions about, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm almost, I love Jews. I knew, I'm a fellow Semite. I went to school with some Jews back in the day. But he didn't seem to have any appreciation for actual Jewish humans whom he could name. So the question is, should somebody lose their post for saying something like that? Oh, I'm not into firing. Yeah. So I don't, I'd actually be curious what you guys would think. I think that when people say stupid stuff, they should be hugged and invited to Shabbat dinners and, <laughs> and loved into existence. And I think that Hillel should be open to any group that wants to talk, including white supremacists. And I think the dialogue is just awesome. And I'm not of the right people out of buildings. or Jews do not want to be the people writing people out of clubs, costing them their jobs, or slamming doors on them. It's, it's, it will come back to bite us in our circumcised schmeckles. Um, I think a culture in which people are scared to talk about something is really bad. Like, everyone should be able to talk about Israel. I think that probably some people don't want to because, I mean, I don't like to talk about things I don't know a lot about. I understand why people wouldn't want to, like, wade into that. I'm confused when people wade in without really knowing that much, and that's where it sort of hits me. But um, I hate when someone says something against Jews and then, like, they lose their job, and I feel like that fuels some sort of simmering anti-Jewish sentiment somehow. Just to be clear, we're going to have three more comments. It's going to be Liel, me, and Colin's going to get the last one. And then we're going to do our last five minutes, and then we're going to go. I I completely agree with that. Uh, I I think that one of the beauties of a free market society is knowing that a certain person or an institution, you know, holds certain views, and then you're free to either go there or not go there. Uh, But I do want to make an exception for for Hillel's. I think it's perfectly fine to argue that uh, an institution designed to promote Jewish life on campus make an exception uh, by saying, uh, if you fundamentally don't believe uh, that we uh, have the right to our own nation state, uh, we just have no interest in you. Just like I don't think any you know, a gay club should have someone whose agenda is that uh, you know, gayness is a disease that could be cured. Uh, I don't think a gay club should have any uh, need to have a person like that come and espouse their views. I just want to say that, that we are giving you a Jew pass from now on to say anything you want at all. So you, if, if anyone ever tries to fire you for anything, you can say the tablet panel of Jewish experts said that I'm down with the Jews. Hold on. Let's test this out. Say something horrible about the Jews right now. <laughs> he already insulted well, yarmulkes. Yeah. When, once I realized you were probably packing, I, I was only going <laughs> to, my only question was going to be why are Jews so adorable yeah. and cute? All right. Uh, everyone, Colin McEnroe, thank you so thank much. You. Yeah.
As is traditional, our Mazel Tovs of the Week before we go. Stephanie Butnick, do you have a Mazel Tov of the Week? I do. My Mazel Tov is for comedian Nagin Farsad, who was on this show a few weeks back. Um, she won her lawsuit against the MTA, and they're going to run... They're going to run... Yeah. <laughs> uh, her ads. They're, they're going to run her ads uh, for her movie, um, The Muslims Are Coming. So we're excited for her. Go listen to that episode. She was, she was great. She's amazing. Leo Leibowitz. My Mazel Tov is to comedian Amy Schumer who uh, we are obliged to mention on every episode of this podcast, uh, who uh, hosted uh, Saturday Night Live brilliantly and who has her first HBO special this Saturday. Mazel tov, Amy. I, you know, it's just, it's, it's fate, I mean, or as we would say, beshert, that we're all uh, mazel toving comedians. Um, I want to mazel tov Anthony uh, Adamanek and James Adamian, who did the best Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders impersonations you will ever see. Uh, and I happened to see them recently, and you should all go check them out on YouTube and whatnot. Can I do a Mazel Tov? Yeah. I, I, I would say Mazel Tov the Mets. I'm not a Mets fan, but um, after the broken leg uh, incident, I was like, je suis Mr. Met. Uh, and, um, and then watching the game last night, I thought, well, maybe this is going to turn into bean balls and stuff like that. And it didn't. They didn't solve it in the somewhat mm-hmm. savage and childish tradition uh, of baseball. <laughs> they just, you know, hit a lot of home runs. Or as they would say in Hebrew, Ani, Mr. Met. Uh, we love mail. If you have thoughts, comments, praise, or questions, send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We might well read them on the air. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Magazine, and this week, uh, we're not going to blame them for it, but we're going to thank Yale University for having us. Yay, Yale! Yay. Um, thanks to our guests, uh, Shelley Kahan and uh, Colin McEnroe. We are produced by Julie Subrin. We ourselves are actually produced by Julie Subrin with superior assistance from Sarah Ivry. Our rabbinic supervision this week is by Rabbi Leah Cohen and Rabbi Josh Ratner of the Slifka Center here at Yale. Our website is tabletmag.com and our music is by Golem. Thanks so much and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you. Bye.